Thank you, Jamie. You may be seated. Good standing. Uh, that's the longest. Uh, that's the longest story in the book of Genesis. We're interesting, isn't it? That this would be the longest, most detailed story in the whole book. Uh, but it is. So there won't be. You won't have to st- stand longer than that. That I can see in our near future. Um, let me pray, and then we will um, consider what this t- uh, passage has to teach us this morning. Let's pray. Father, again we come to you bringing nothing but need. We ask that you would speak to us through your word. Help us to um, learn more of your love and lean more and more into Christ as a result of hearing this uh, word that is yours, that is precious and a treasure for us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So last week, you can think back, we, we, we looked at the passage where Abraham gets his first bit of land. Two promises to Abraham, a place and a nation. And a lot of the, the text, the passage, the Abraham story has been preoccupied with the question of the offspring. How is Abraham and Sarah going to have this child? And the answer is, miraculously, angels show up to tell. The, the Lord visits uh, Sarah and provides some miraculous conception that takes place. Um, And Isaac is born. The question of land, on the other hand, that one is dealt with in a more ordinary, less spectacular way. And it's slow. Uh, Decades go by. Sarah doesn't even see any land. They're sojourners her whole life in the promised land. And finally, last week, Abraham gets this little burial plot for his family and, and, and in subsequent generations, land acquired. But what we notice is that it happened fairly ordinarily. It was a typical ancient Near Eastern land deal that took place between Abraham and the Hittite king Ephron. Okay? And what we said is, oftentimes, that's how God works in our lives. We, we gravitate towards the spectacular. We want to see the spectacular, and understandably. But 95% of our lives, God is at work slowly and ordinarily. And so the question is, if God's working slowly and ordinarily in our lives, how can we even know that it's happening? How can we, how can we even be sure that anything is happening in our lives day in? And day out. How can we know that God is there? I can imagine a, a kind of a skeptic saying, well, that's pretty convenient that God works most of the time slowly and ordinarily in a way that you can't see, because that means there's no difference between your life and the life of the you know, non-believer down the street. It's convenient, isn't it? And what I would say is, yes, God works slowly and ordinarily, But that doesn't mean it's not discernible. That doesn't mean that God's work in our lives isn't something we can see. Okay? So we're going to take up a really important question this morning, and that is, how can we see the work of God in our lives? How can we see it? So that's the question. Let's jump in because it's a long passage. 
Uh, look at verse 1. Abraham is old, and he does the responsible thing as he's aging. He's beginning to settle his affairs for subsequent generations. And one of the big questions that Abraham wants to kind of nail down or answer is Isaac's wife. Who is Isaac going to marry? And he does what any dad of the ancient world would do, of his, ask of his servant. He asks his servant to put his hand under his thigh. Now, here's the thing. That's even, the English translation is more modest. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's an oath moment, and commentators aren't exactly sure what's going on, but, but the idea is we're dealing with subsequent future generations, lineage. And so the servant makes an oath, and Abraham asks this servant to find a wife for, a, for Isaac from Abraham's kindred, not the Canaanites, who are, that would be the local easy choice, but to go back to Abraham's homeland to find a wife from his kindred. And the servant agrees and then asks a question. Look at verse 5. The servant of Abraham says, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me back to this land. Must I then take your son back to your homeland? And Abraham says, No. God called me to this place. And this wife of Isaac, Isaac's going to remain in this place, and so his wife must come back. In fact, if she's unwilling to go, you're free from your oath. And so the servant leaves, and he travels this far distance to go back to Abraham's homeland, the place that Abraham came from way back in chapter 12. And the servant arrives there, and as he does, he rests his camel, and he offers a prayer. It's the first prayer we see in the Bible of a prayer for guidance. And this is what he prays. Look at verse 12. The servant says, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water and the daughters of men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink and who shall say drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one that you've appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. And as he concludes this prayer, along comes this Rebecca, beautiful in appearance. She comes and she offers the servant some water, a drink, which would have been a pretty standard welcome to a guest at the well. And then she does what is an incredible long shot. She offers to feed Ten camels. Um, that's, it, it's sort of, it can be easily lost on us, but that's a, lot, that's, a, that's a lot of work, feeding ten camels. I mean, what do you, if you know anything about camels, they can hold a lot of water. Um, a typical camel can drink 25 gallons of water when it's thirsty. I mean, your Suburban takes about 25 gallons of gasoline when you fill it up. That's how much a camel drinks. Ten camels? That's 250 gallons of water. And it says that Rebecca not only watered the servant, gave him water, she watered the camels until they wouldn't drink anymore. She's given them 250 gallons of water. And let me tell you this, when you're drawing, they're not just turning on the faucet, we're drawing water out of a well. You know how much water you get out of a well? About three gallons. So that's like 80 to 100 well 
uh, dips, dips of the well drawings, uh, to feed these camels. It's, an, it's, it's such a long shot. What Rebecca is doing, it's, it's like so above and beyond what anyone would expect of anyone to do. It's like if an entourage of 10 vehicles comes to visit you and you say, welcome, you, you made it. Let me f- go fill up all of your cars with gasoline. I'll rotate your tires. I'll provide all the maintenance necessary. I'll give you all of your vehicles an oil change. I mean, this, that's, a, that's a lot, right? And that's what Rebecca does here. It's unexpected. It's unlikely generosity. And here's the thing. It leaves no doubt that God is in this. And still, though, I mean, she does exactly what the servant prayed that she would do. But still, the servant is a model servant. We don't know who he is. He may be Eliezer, which was one of Abraham's servants. Um, Whoever he is, he's a model servant. He's very conscientious. And he doesn't assume that because Rebecca did this, this is like, this is it. Look at what he does in verse 21. The servant gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. And this is the key. This is the answer to our question that we asked. If God is at work ordinarily and slowly in our lives, how do we discern the works of God in our lives? This is crucial for us to answer this question. We must have a sense of God working in our lives. Richard Lovelace says that an essential element for your spiritual renewal, essential, is that we have an awareness of the Holy Spirit's presence and power and work in our lives. It's essential. And God's hand is in our life, and he's working through these ordinary circumstances. So how do we see it? You want to see it, don't you? You want to see God's work in your life, especially in the midst of suffering? When times are chaotic, don't you want to know that God is, has designed these circumstances perfectly for your perfection and his greater glory? We want to know that God is working in our lives. So how do we do it? Well, verse 21 gives us a big clue. Look, look at it again, verse 21. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey. So what do you do? You gaze at un- unknown women silently? No, that's not it. Well, what is he doing here? He's looking at his circumstances. He's stepping back, and he's pondering the moment. He's reflecting. He's considering the moment carefully, and he's doing it in silence. He's stepping back from the present moment, and he's reflecting. And this is, this is the answer to this question of how we discern God's work in our lives. We gaze at our lives in silence. This is essential for discerning God's work in our lives. We turn down the noise, we step back from the frenzy, and we consider what God is doing. That's what the servant is doing here. Now, what does that look like practically? How do I discern God's, how do I step back from the frenzy and consider in silence whether the Lord is prospering my, my life, my journey. Practically, how do I do that? Well, it, it can look differently. Maybe it, perhaps it's a walking through, uh, walking just outside, on your own, prayerfully, 
walking. Maybe it's journaling. Journaling is, journaling is actually really helpful because remember, remember last week we talked about how our, our spiritual growth is a lot like our physical growth. We don't see it happening, but when we look back at pictures of ourselves, we say, I'm taller, I'm bigger, I'm short, whatever it is. Journaling provides that little snapshot into our soul at, any, at a point in time. And when we look back, we, we can see the growth. So journaling is an important thing. Maybe it's just sitting in silence. But I believe what, what we can learn from this servant here is that what we do need to do is gaze at our life in silence. We've, we're taking a group of men through uh, elder training. And one of the tasks that we've done together as a group is we've considered five key events in our lives, five, five moments in our lives, and we've just considered it, reflected upon it, and thought about how, how do those things fit into this larger story that God is weaving in our lives. And I think for, for every one of us, it's been a revealing moment. It's been an encouraging moment to, to, to realize God is at work. He really is at work in our lives. But this is difficult for us. I mean, we're, we're the most distracted populace ever, aren't we? I mean, people have probably always, always struggled with diversion, but it seems really bad right now. And we've got the smartest minds on the planet, taking the best psychology on planet, on planet Earth, and taking the best technology, and they're putting all of that together to create these little devices that are constantly after our attention, that are constantly asking us to divert ourselves from ourselves and play a game or catch up or whatever it is, to stay busy. It's a difficult moment for us to do that. But if you want a keen sense of God's work in your life, the way that he's orchestrating your life, then you've got to give silent attention to your life. Reflect, pray, ask, ask God to help you see how he's guiding your life. Ask him to show you how he's working in your life. Pray that, pray that. Well, the servant concludes, this is the one. And he gives her gifts, lavish gifts. And Rebecca extends more hospitality. Look at what she says in verse 25. We have plenty of straw and fodder and room to spend the night. Come on, stay with us. And God grants success. And Rebecca's hospitality is above and beyond what anyone would have expect, expected. And it's a direct answer to the prayer of the servant. And the servant has a proper response. Look at what he does in verse 26. The servant bows his head. He worshiped the Lord. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master, Abraham, who's not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. And so the servant, seeing God's work, demonstrable display of God's hand in, these, in this situation, um, responds humbly and in prayer and praise. Derek Kidner, regarding this, says, Success, which inflates the, na the natural man, humbles the man of God. Because we know God is the one doing this in our lives. And then we're introduced in this text to Laban. 
Now, we're going we're gonna to see Laban again in, uh, in a few chapters, but we get a little introduction to him, and he's a colorful character in the book of Genesis. In fact, we get a little foreshadow of what we can expect later on when we see Laban. Look at, look at verse 29. It says, Rebekah had a brother. This is, this is her brother. Uh, whose name was Laban. Now, Laban's running a lot of the household affairs, so Rebecca's father's maybe out of the picture. Maybe he's old. Maybe he's died. Maybe he's infirm. We, we don't know. But Laban's kind of running things. And Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. Now, why does Laban run to the man to visit him? Is it because they, the family has a guest coming to town and he wants to, start, he wants to water the camels? Is that why Laban's running out? Is it because somebody from Abraham's kin is... Uh, is, is, is in town and they want to take care of kinfolk? Is that what it is? Look at verse 30. Now you have a period and a next new sentence, but I, don't, I think these are to be read together. He ran to the man as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms. He sees Rebecca. He sees the bling bling flashing down the hillside. And he thinks, oh, somebody wealthy came to town. We got to Let's roll out the red carpet. There could, there could be something in this for me. And so he greets him. He says, look at verse 31. Come on in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? Get in here. For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. Now, we've seen the servants care. Remember this? I mean, just think about the... You, you get the sense that the servant is, is being so diligent in this task. He's asking clarifying questions of Abraham. What if she doesn't come back? Is that okay? And then he gets and he prays. And then he doesn't just jump to conclusions when Rebecca does all of this incredible stuff. He ponders and he waits to make sure that it's right. So he's, he's, he's exercising lots of care. He's also very competent and walking shrewdly in the midst of all of this. He sniffs out Laban's motives. And he says, so he, he walks in, he, he's received by Laban, he, rest, he unharnesses his camels, they settle in, and verse 33, food was set before the servant. But he said, I'm not going to eat until I have said what I have to say. He understands Laban's ways. He says, I'm not going to further indebt myself to you until we work out what I came to do. Okay, he's walking shrewdly. And faithfulness it does not mean walking naively through life, but being, but being shrewd. I mean, Jesus called us to be as shrewd as, as, as snakes and as innocent as, as doves. And so this servant is walking shrewdly into this, into this home. And, and then Laban says, go ahead, speak on. And so he relays the story and Jamie, it actually wasn't in the text, but Jamie, you read the whole thing because you're reading out of your Bible. And so maybe, I don't know if you picked up on it, but he relays the whole story. But even if you look closely at how the, the wise man or the servant is relaying the story, he's doing it tactfully. He's selecting certain pieces of the story to kind of persuade Laban in all of this. He's shrewd. And then, verse 51, Laban gives Rebekah over to be Isaac's wife. And all of it is placed on shaky ground, okay? There's a, there's a, there's a wrinkle that occurs. Okay, so they spend the rest of the evening 
enjoy, dining and enjoying one another's company. And then the next morning, Laban has a different tune. Look at verse 54. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me, the servant said, send me away to my master. And Laban and their mother said, let the young woman remain for us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. Okay, this is kind of shady. Laban already said she's your wife, and now they're saying, well, let's just let her stay for about 10 days. Actually, in the Hebrew, is, is, is un, very uh, vague there. It, um, it actually says days or 10. That's literally what it says. Let her say days or 10. And, and some commentators say, well, what does that mean? Does that mean a few days? Does that mean a few months? Does that mean a few days or 10 years? What does it mean? Maybe the, the lack of clarity on it is kind of the point. Laban's sort of pulling back. He's reneging on his promise. In verse 56, the servant says, don't delay me. The Lord's prospered my journey. You've, don't you see the providence of God in this? Are you gonna, are you, it's, it's a subtle way of saying, are you going to mess with the providence of God that's been demonstrated? And so the whole matter is put on Rebecca. Verse 58, they call Rebecca and they say to her, Will you go with this man? And with all eyes on Rebecca, what is she going to say? She says, I will go. And Rebecca goes. Much like Abraham leaving his household, leaving his land to go to the land of promise. To become a blessed, a, a, a blessed people and to be a blessing to the nations. Rebecca does the same. She goes. And then we learn of Isaac and Rebekah meeting. Look at verse 62 and following. It says, Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. He lifted up his eyes and he saw, and behold, there were camels coming. Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel, said to the servant, who's that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, it's my master. So she took her veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Isn't that a beautiful story? It's the longest story in the whole book of Genesis. Isaac and Rebekah meeting and marrying Here's the thing that we see. If there's one thing that's clear from this passage, it's that God is at work in all of this, just as he has been the whole way. In the spectacular and the ordinary, God is at work, working out the details, building a nation that will bless all nations. And his purposes will not be thwarted. And he's at work similarly in our own lives one of my questions for you this morning is, do you believe that? And do you see his love toward you? One of, one of my favorite aspects of this whole story is the care and competency and seriousness with which this servant takes his, his task, right? He carries out his duties with the utmost diligence. He asks the clarifying questions. He prays. He reflects. He walks shrewdly and competently amidst disingenuous and greedy Laban. And he does it all for Isaac 
to get Isaac a wife so that God's purposes could move forward to the next generation. Did you know that our Lord walked similarly? Our Lord, the suffering servant, Jesus, walked in a similar manner? His coming to us was in response to the Father's commissioning of him. He prayed to the Father. He walked shrewdly and competently amidst the Labans of his day. He didn't just want his wealth, they wanted his very life. And you know what he came to acquire? You know what he came to get? A wife, a bride, his church. That was his aim. And remember what his church did. Did his church water his camels? Did his church do above and beyond to serve him? To crown him the king of kings? No. In his moment of need, where were his disciples? They ran. They flee. They didn't say, I will go. They said, I will run. They hid. They denied him. And still, his love kept coming after them, pursuing them, pursuing his people, pursuing his bride. And he gave his very life for his bride. That's his love for you. And so let me ask you this. Given God's surprising, emphatic display of love to his bride, the church, how could you doubt that he's not, that he's not working in your life ordinarily? Like Christ has done the heavy lifting. He died a death on the cross for our sins. We've been raised from death to life. The heavy lifting has been done. Finishing, he's going to finish the, the, the project. Like if you're, if you're a house builder and you're building a house and you lay the foundation and you frame it and you lay the bricks, you get the windows in place, you get the flooring, the paint, and then you've got some hardware to install and some light bulbs to screw in, are you going to stop at, at that final stage? No, you've already invested so much in the project. Christ has invested his whole life into this project of beautifying acquiring and beautifying his church. He's not going to stop until it's done. If we want to see this work that Christ is doing in our lives, we must stop and listen and attend to the story of, the, of our lives, just like the servant, gazing in silence at our lives, considering God's hand, meditating on it, reflecting upon God's work, maybe even journaling or sharing with one another the work of God in our lives, as well as our struggles. And that, that requires us to turn the noise down, to attend to God's quiet and ordinary, even hidden hand in our lives. Because it is at work, powerfully, turning us into new beings. And let me say one final word, too. I can, I, I can imagine, I know how our hearts work. I know how my heart works. I can imagine us thinking, okay, so um, I go on walks, I get a journal, I start writing in that every day, I start doing these things, and, and I do all these things to see God's work, and, and, and maybe then, like, you know, God will really love me. That's not, that's not it. And if we do that, we've, we've shifted our foundation from Christ and his love to us to our ability to discern God's work in our life through these disciplines that I've described, which are helpful. But if we've shifted our, our, our foundation from Christ to those things, we've missed 
Like Christ's love for you doesn't even depend upon how well you discern it. Think about love. Some of the most beautiful love that one human can show another is love that, that, that the person loved doesn't even see or doesn't even realize is happening. To consider a mom, a mother with her infant, caring, loving. Does the infant know what's going on? To some degree, maybe, but not really. Think of a, a son or daughter caring for their elderly, aging, infirm mother or father. Oblivious, mom and dad, oblivious to the care. That's, that's, that's love right there. God's love is there for us even when we don't realize it. It's the best kind of love. Let's pray as we close. Father, we give you thanks for your grace and your love to us in Christ. We thank you that this vivid story that we've, we've just considered is um, in many ways the story of your love. Only we didn't respond very well. We didn't water camels. We didn't extend much in the way of hospitality. Uh, but you kept coming. And you're beautifying us and making us your perfect bride. And we pray that you would continue that work as we continue to worship you this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.